Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. My new book, Expat Secrets, is doing fantastic on Amazon right now. The book paints a clear picture on how to internationalize your life. We get into how to use the offshore markets to protect your assets, minimize your taxes, and grab yourself a second passport. We talk about the best places to live, the best places to hold your wealth, and the best places to run your business from. At the end of this book, you'll have a much clearer picture of how things fit together and what steps you need to take in your own life to diversify your business, wealth, and life overseas. You can grab a copy on Amazon today by searching Expat Secrets or going to expatsecretsbook.com. That's expatsecretsbook.com. Okay, let's jump into today's interview. You're going to love this conversation. Let's do it. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show. And today's guest is the author of 22 books and monographs, including the Uncle Eric series of books, which focuses on economics, law, and history. And he has written the U.S. and World Early Warning Report, an investment newsletter that follows an Austrian school of economic perspective of what is happening in the world for nearly 30 years. Early Warning Report is read inside the CIA and the Pentagon, and former Libertarian presidential candidate Ron Paul said, I look forward to reading every issue of your Early Warning Report. Please welcome to the show, Richard Mayberry. Richard, how are you doing? Uh, very good, Mikhail. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm not used to pronouncing your name. Um, uh, but uh, yes, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Incidentally, I would like to congratulate you. Um, you have people like uh, Doug Casey, and um, Jim Rogers, uh, others that are of this mindset that the the general public usually does not get an exposure to, and and so general public all they see is liberals versus conservatives or some equivalent of that in whatever country they're in, and and there are other viewpoints out there, and I think that people like you should really be patted on the back for presenting something that is out of the mainstream. It's an alternative view of what's going on in the world, and and congratulations to you. And I, I give you my personal thanks for doing this kind of work because uh, it's so important people for people to understand there's something more different than just the left and the right. 
Well, thank you very much. That's very kind of you to say. And I like to think that I'm kind of passing the torch, carrying the torch now, you could say, because learning from gentlemen like you and like you said, Doug Casey and people like this, you guys have such a wealth of information that it's so difficult to find anywhere. You can't find it on the television. You can't find it in the mainstream media. You really have to go out there and search for it. So I tried to take a lot of this information and explain to people how important it is in today's day and age, you know, for my generation, like we'll get into earlier, or sorry, we'll get into later, like I'm only 35 years old. And I look back at my life. And these types of things, they're not talked about often at all, really. Mm -hmm. You're you're actually, um, if you deviate from the mainstream presses and the government's view that everything can be broken down into left versus right, if you deviate from that little model, um, which is so simplistic, so misleading, but if you deviate from it, you are sort of considered to be kind of uh, either a nut or a traitor. Um, and and so, uh, you know, people don't want to hear <laughs> that there is some other view out there. It's amazing to me. Uh, even though I think if you look at the track record of that view going back at least 40 years that I know of, uh, at least 50 years that I know of, um, it has a very much better um, record of predicting what's going to happen after governments do whatever they do. Um, I, I mean, it's just hands down. I, it, it's just such, such a superior viewpoint. But as you say, there are so many established people out there who who are selling this left versus right view that uh, they the the general public just simply cannot access as a general rule uh, the any alternative viewpoint whatsoever. So, have you found that has always been the case? Like, I want to get into how you started the early warning report, and you know why it was working back then and even today in 2019 it is still as applicable as i imagine it ever was like you've really stood the test of time with your writing uh yeah um and and that is because mostly because um i'm speaking from a uh, a voice of experience viewpoint um, the way I got into this is I was in the Air Force when I was, let's say, I got in when I was 20. I was stationed in Central America, and I flew missions um, as an air crew member in uh, Central America and parts of South America. It was all over Central America. And um, I found out what the government, what the U.S. government really does in other countries. Not what Americans are taught that the, the government does, but what it really does, because I was part of it. And I found out that the federal government's foreign and military policies are absolutely brutal. Now, Americans are taught pretty much about foreign aid. Look at all the money the federal government gives to these other countries. Well, as a general rule, it has a reason for giving that money. It has nothing to do with uh, humanitarian causes. Uh, the federal government has a world empire, and one of the ways it maintains that empire is by putting uh, or putting other um, tyrants in power, or at least um, picking ones who are already in power and keeping them there. And one of the ways it does that is by training the troops of those of those tyrants 
in these other countries. And that's what I was doing when I was in the Air Force. I was in the 605th Special Operations Squadron. It was also called the 605th uh, Air Commando Squadron. And it was doing just what the special operations troops do today. And a very big part of that mission is to train the troops of these foreign thugs and keep those thugs in power. Uh, They kiss up to Washington. Uh, They generally do what Washington wants them to do. And so the people in Washington have this thrilling use of of political power that that all um, power junkies once all through history. So I was doing that job, training those troops. Uh, a big part of the uh, refugee crisis that the United States seems to be facing here today is from the work that I did um, when I was a troop, training the troops of those dictators back there in the 1960s. Those Those countries are a mess, and the reason they're a mess is that Washington keeps or at least kept those dictators in power. I was part of that process of keeping those dictators in power. I was helping those governments kill innocent people who were trying to resist their domination. Well, I was in Central America. I hitchhiked through Central America in 2004 with just myself in a backpack and a tent. And I remember going into El Salvador and seeing the repercussions of war that had waged earlier. And you would see people with amputations and burns on their face and all kinds of things. And it was such a stark contrast from coming where, from somewhere like Mexico. And like it's amazing to think that when those types of things started and the U.S.'s uh, implications in that type of uh, situation. Uh, yeah. Um, the... <laughs> the the Monroe Doctrine. Americans are all taught the Monroe Doctrine, and they go to school, and they're taught that the purpose of the Monroe Doctrine was to keep the Europeans out of the Western Hemisphere, and that if it, if that were the case, that would be a good thing. But actually, what the Monroe Doctrine pretty quickly morphed into is a way for the U.S. government to become the hegemon of the Western Hemisphere. Because it kept all these other governments out, and it had the whole place to itself. And these American politicians just assumed that America has some sort of right to tell other people what kind of governments they should have. And it did that throughout um, Latin America. And I was just a part of that process. I was young. I was really stupid about geopolitics. I didn't know anything. I believed what I was taught in school. And I just followed orders and helped prop up the federal government's empire in those in those uh, countries and um, participate in those wars. Um, it, it was just madness. And but and it I I went into a kind of ideological shock when I was in my twenties because of that. And my mother used to talk about how I came home from the Air Force and I was a real mess. Um, and, and she was right. I was, uh, now, uh, I, it was also, you know, that experience was also part of my, um, going in the direction of believing in the system of liberty and free markets, because there was an incident that happened one day or one evening, actually, we had uh, flown a mission in one of those countries. I don't remember which one it was, but we came, uh, came back, landed at the airport 
and um, we're going to spend the night in a hotel there. So we're walking in the front door of the hotel, and we just had big uh, steak dinner, and and we're feeling really good and relaxed, um, looking forward to a, a good night's sleep and a clean bed with a shower and uh, you know a nice room. There was a line going in, and the line stopped for a, for a couple of minutes. I don't know why. And so I was standing outside the hotel, just looking around, and across the street, there was a woman with three children, and as I watched, um, while I'm waiting to go into this nice, comfortable hotel, and she put her head on a concrete step, and I realized she's going to spend the night there, and that's her pillow, and then all three kids just bunched up around her, and she pulled her cloak over the four of them and uh, settled down for the night. And I watched that, and I thought to myself, why the difference? Why am I experiencing something so much different than she is? You know, what, what's going on in these countries that makes America so much different than them? And and that set me off on the, the road to Austrian economics to learn, you know, what's the difference between these terribly poor, miserable people and and the way I was living as an American, the way I grew up. So that you know that was a very important thing for me to actually see reality um, and to wonder about the cause of it, and and also to you know not just that incident, but to be involved in this insanity of training these troops to to kill Indians. Essentially, that's something that Americans have no understanding of. They know about the Indian Wars in America, and they know about uh, the Apaches and the Sioux and all the rest being just terribly, uh, you know, uh, in most cases wiped out by the U.S. government. They don't realize those wars are still going on in Latin America, and I was part of them back in the 60s. Those governments are still at war with those Indians down there. Those Indians want their land back. A whole lot of southern Mexico, that the trouble there. That's the Indian Wars that Americans were fighting in the 1800s are still being fought in Latin America. Running on here. Uh, so No, it's fascinating to listen to you. But when I think of Central American Wars, the first thing that I comes to mind is fighting communism. Wasn't that what we were meant to believe? Well, that's, yeah, that's what we were meant to believe. That's what the story was. But I found out when I was down there, I mean, if, if you had uh, asked uh, one of these uh, guerrillas that we were helping to kill, um, who is Karl Marx, he would have thought you were talking about one of Groucho's brothers. They they didn't know anything about communism. They didn't care about communism. They want a Yankee to go home. And you and you saw that all the time. There were signs all over it's Yankee go home. That's what they wanted. They wanted the Americans to get out of their country. Same as it is all over the world. Well, even when I was there, I'm Canadian and I heard gringo, gringo, gringo. And it's not till later on that you realize it means green go, as in like army fatigue people get out, kind of. Um and that's the it's kind of morphed into its own word, but that's the root, that's where it came from. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Uh, the, the, the U.S. government has a global empire. It has all sorts of puppet, puppet governments all over the world that do its bidding, very similar to the old Roman Empire. And, um, 
Americans are taught nothing about this. They have no idea what Washington does to people in other countries. And, and so, um, it's, uh, <laughs> I get kind of emotional about it when I think back to those days when I was going through. Uh, you know, at some point, I don't remember when it was, but maybe six months in or so, I realized, you know, we're, we're risking our lives here for purposes that are dishonorable, for things that are bad for America. We're risking our lives for that. And that, what I've come to understand is that the go federal government was doing that all through the 20th century, and they're doing it in the 21st century now. Um, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And uh, so it's when I'm writing about events around the world, um, I'm writing about things that I personally participated in when I was a young man. Well, you've brought up so many interesting points there, and I'm just trying to figure out which direction we should take this conversation, because there's just so many things I want to ask you about. But I guess to start off, the in your books you explain about, and I'm going to try to pronounce it, Jus Naturalis. Is that how you say it? No, I say it, Juris Naturalis. Juris Naturalis. Can you break down this? Because I think that this ties in directly to what you were just saying about unjust um, actions by governments. Yeah. Um, uh, we're referring to um, um, all right, I see. the system that I refer to as Juris Naturalism, uh, meaning natural law. And uh, I don't mean anything that has to do with the environmental movement. I invented my my term long before they came along. There used to be in the world, and especially in America and Britain, uh, an assumption that there is a higher law than any government's law. And that when legislatures sit down to make up laws, that's really all they're doing is making up laws. There is, um, under Juris Naturalism and um, anything that related to it, any any legal system based on the assumption that there are higher laws than any government's law, what what legislatures do is is pretty much laughed at. It's it's regarded as a joke that the the idea that someone can make up a law is just absurd because. For thousands of years, this system of natural law goes all the way back into the Roman Republic, and then before that even, there was this assumption that there is a natural set of behaviors that work for human beings, just like there are natural behaviors that work for other uh, creatures, too. Um, flying works for a bird. Swimming works for a fish. Now, the bird and the fish can decide that they won't fly or they won't swim, uh, but they will not prosper. They will probably die. So there, there's a law for, for those species that says this is a behavior that works for you. And what uh, Juris Naturalism is, or natural law is, the assumption that there are behaviors that work for humans, and if those behaviors are not followed, then bad things happen. And you can take those, the, the whole natural law system, um, I've found, can be boiled down into 17 words. 
And those 17 words are, do all you have agreed to do and do not encroach on other persons or their property. 17 words. Now, do all you have agreed to do is the basis of contract law going way back many, many, many centuries. And uh, do not encroach on other persons or their property is the basis of tort law and some criminal law. You will find those, you'll find equivalents of those uh, 17 words in any ancient legal system that you want to study anywhere in the world. All human societies go back to those 17 words in one way or another because uh, human progress cannot happen unless humans are obeying those 17 words. Again, do all you have agreed to do and do not encroach on other persons or their property. Every legal system that, that's known going back at least 4,000 years and probably 6,000 years is based on those 17 words. And um, if you read my Uncle Eric book called Whatever Happened to Justice, uh, you'll find this explained in more detail there. There's essentially two kinds of legal systems in the world. One is political and one is scientific. And the scientific one is the one based on those, those 17 words. You can prove the validity of those 17 words yourself anytime you want. You can do a scientific experiment that will show you that those are the correct behaviors for humans. And the way you do that is by simply breaking those two laws anytime you get the chance. And then ask yourself, you know, do this for two or three days. Violate those 17 words every chance you get. And after two or three days, ask yourself, has your life gotten better or has it gotten worse? And I guarantee you, you will find that it's gotten worse. I, I would... I can imagine. So speak to me about the word encroach, because often when I think of these two laws, I hear the word aggress. So do not aggress against others or their property. Is there a difference between encroach or what does this mean to you? Um, I don't I don't mind the word aggress at all. Um, it's got a flavor to it that um, uh, is attractive to me. I, I pick the word encroach because encroach implies that there's a line that should not be crossed. And that's a challenge to courts to find out where those lines are and to punish people who cross them uh, or to cause those people to make restitution to those that they have encroached upon. So um, that's the reason I use encroach, because it implies that there's a line that should not be crossed. Uh, it's a very important uh, point these days in the, what is it, the hashtag Me Too movement about uh, uh, sexual uh, abuse. What everybody is dancing around is the idea that there's got to be a line there that nobody crosses. Um, and then when somebody does cross it, then restitution is owed to the person who's been damaged. And it should be the court's job to, to point to that line and say, do not cross this point. And the courts don't do that. They just stand around waiting for the legislatures to come up with something. So you, you've got all these politicians 
who are liars. Uh, and, you know, a lot of them are just outright crooked. And you're expecting them to come up with some sort of, of law of, of ethics. And it's crazy. Um, the, it's the court's job, and it always has been for thousands of years, to figure out where those lines are and to tell people, don't cross this line. So um, that's what Encroach is all about. So when I was reading your books and I and I came across this word and and I've heard the word aggress, you know, a thousand times when I've when I've heard these words. And then I was thinking about the word encroach. And I don't know, maybe it's silly, but I remember back when I was a child and it would be, say, Sunday morning and I would be sitting outside with my father. You know, we'd be sitting outside. It'd be a beautiful day. And then someone would start the lawnmower and they'd be cutting the grass and it would be eight o'clock on a Sunday morning. Now, that's not aggressing against us. But I'm curious, is a situation like that, is that encroaching? You know, is that noise pollution? Is that because I think of these bylaws, I think of these small things that go on in people's lives and they want someone to to mediate. So is it just to mediate things like that? Or is it just personal space, like someone attacking or touching or or sexually hurting someone else? Well, it's, it's both of those. Both, those examples you're giving are all applicable. And it, it isn't just at the personal level either. It goes all the way up to nations. Um, you can go back to um, one of my favorite examples is uh, 1941. Um, in the summer of 1941, this is several months before the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor. And the U.S. was drawn into World War II. Um, President Roosevelt was conducting what he called pop-up cruises uh, against the Japanese. He was sending American warships, cruisers, into Japanese home water. Um, and it was the equivalent of the Japanese Navy if they had sent um, their cruisers into San Francisco Bay. You don't do that kind of thing. That's encroachment. Uh, it scares the heck out of the local population. So um, Roosevelt was doing this, and um, I actually know of a man who was on one of those cruisers, and uh, one night uh, he was uh, standing on deck as they cruised into the Bungo Strait in, in the center of Japan, and one of most Japan's most important home waters. And the, and the guy was standing there, this is a few months before Pearl Harbor, saying to himself, why is Washington poking a sharp stick at the Japanese? Um, and uh, obviously, it was for the purpose of provoking the Japanese into retaliating, which is what happened. And, and Roosevelt was doing a lot of other things to the Japanese, too, that Americans at that time didn't know about. Uh, it cut off their, their oil supply, for instance. So um, those were encroachments, and uh, they were operating on a geopolitical scale. And that's a lot of what I write about, is the way governments encroach on each other and on their own populations um, around the world. They all do it. Um, all governments are, are run by power junkies, and those power, those power junkies want to use their power once they have it, and they want to acquire more. And... Um, they want it. The main thing is, is it, what's the point of having power if you can't use it on somebody? They're all, all governments are motivated by that question. Why do I have this power if I can't use it on somebody? So uh, governments attract people 
who want to encroach on other people. That's what governments are all about, is, is encroachment. Uh, and so, you know, that's, as I say, that's a great deal of what Early Warning Report deals with. Well, I think that's a perfect time to segue, because honestly, I want to understand what is going on in the world right now. Because if I look at the news, first first of all, I don't trust them the mainstream media whatsoever. I was about to say very much, but that's not really true. I don't, I, I don't trust them at all. And when I'm looking at the mainstream media, when I do happen to see something that's going on, like I can't make heads or tails of it. I, I, I don't understand what's going on with the trade war. Now, I understand what a trade war is. I understand what tariffs are. I understand like the technical side of it. I don't understand why it's happening and what it means for us. It's it's that second part of the equation that I'm missing. And I'm hoping maybe you're going to be able to shed some light on that and, and some other topics that maybe we can get into today. Yeah, okay. Um, there's different ways of looking at the, you know, different angles for looking at the trade war. Well, one thing that goes on, and this is pretty common all through history, is that a political leader is in power and he wants to stay in power and he wants to be able to use that power on the population. And so the way he convinces them that they should tolerate his abuse is by this guy turning himself into a protector against foreign devils. And so he's always, uh, there's a quote by Plato, I think it is, when the tyrant has exposed has disposed of foreign enemies through conquest or treaty, and there's no longer anything to fear from them, he's always stirring up some war or other so that the population will need a protector. And that's what a great deal of what governmental behavior is about, is keeping the population scared so they'll tolerate the government that's claiming to protect them. And and so all governments have a kind of a symbiotic relationship with each other. It's uh, you scare my population and I'll scare yours and we'll both stay in power. And so there's this, this constant thing that goes on around the world of these governments stirring up trouble between themselves in order to keep themselves in power. Every government lives in fear of a threat shortage. They all, none of them want to run out of threats. They've got to have a good inventory of threats or they're not going to stay in power. So that's a big part of what the trade war is about. Uh, not just this trade war, but any trade war. Another part of it is that the way you stay in power is by um, having domestic supporters who that you're doing favors for, and they want to keep you in power. And um, what uh, governments have often done is, is levy trade restrictions on other countries, on the people in other countries, so that the people who are being protected from competition in their countries will keep them in power. That's a big part of it. Um, the politician that can stand up there these days in front of the TV camera and, and say, you know, I'm going to protect you from the terrible competitors in other countries. They're evil people. They undercut you. Um, then, you know, whoever he's protecting, they're going to want him in power and they're going to want to keep him there. So that's a big part of what goes on. Um, another part is, is, um, they're, they're just, um, 
people who are power seekers, or I, I rather call them power junkies, um, they're bullies, and they want to push other people around. Uh, there's some satisfaction that bullies get. So these power junkies that, that get into office, um, they're, they're, they just want to push somebody around. And that's another part of what, what causes the trade wars. Explain to me what you think will happen with this trade war. And, and I'm speaking specifically with the trade wars that are going on right now with China. So like I said earlier, I'm 35 years old. I've never lived through one of these. I know that through history, we've had things like this, or even if they did exist while I was alive, it wasn't something that I followed as closely as I am now. And I think that's particular because, you know, my wife is from China. We own properties in China. We go back and forth between the Middle East and China many, many, many times every single year. And and I'm just trying to get a better picture of what this means for the world economy and for my investments and for my future and my family's future. I'm hoping you will be able to explain a little bit because I've looked at your track record while reading early warning report and it's 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 unbelievable compared to other publications that are out there. I just want to take a quick break here. After I finished recording this conversation with Richard Mayberry, he made a very special offer to all my amazing listeners here at the Expat Money Show. He offered us a 40% off discount on his one-year subscription to Early Warning Report, his financial newsletter that includes 10 timely issues. If you live in the USA, you get it delivered physically to your door and electronically. And if you live overseas like me, he's going to send it to you electronically in a PDF. Every month when my report comes in, I print it out, sit on my balcony with an espresso, and read it all in one sitting. I rely on Early Warning Report to understand how things fit together from that 40,000-foot view, how geopolitics, economics, and law are affecting my money today. Richard Mayberry's writing in Early Warning Report is the closest thing you are going to find to seeing into the future. If you want to learn more about this special opportunity and claim 40% off the cover price of Early Warning Report today, just go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash EWR. Well, thank you very much. Actually, the trade war is one of them I'm more proud of because, <laughs> I don't know, two or three years ago, I, when Trump was running, I was writing, if this guy gets his tariffs, um, look out, we're going to be headed for war. And I, I pretty much laid out exactly the, the steps that would occur. And, it, and <laughs> as you say, uh, it's, it's turning out that way. The really scary thing here is trade wars tend to lead to shooting wars. Um, once people are no longer trading with each other, then they're much more likely to fight with each other. Um, and so uh, trade tends to create peace. Uh, if somebody, you know, I guess the way to say it is that uh, nobody wants to bomb his customers. You've never heard that ever in the history of the world. Nobody has ever suggested bombing his customers. So if people are trading with each other, that tends to promote peace. And when they stop trading with each other, then that opens the door to war. Uh, it's been observed many, many times. Um, the economists, the libertarian economists, 
uh, Frederick Bastiat commented, uh, when uh, goods do not cross borders, soldiers will. And I think that's the direction things are headed now with this trade war with, uh, between Trump uh, and and uh, uh, Z in China. Um, you have two power junkies here who um, are using each other in order to frighten their populations, and so their populations will keep them in power. But if if this thing pushes the Chinese government very much farther, the Chinese government is going to have enough unemployment on its hands that it will be running the risk of a revolution. It's one of the things that obsesses the Chinese government because it's been around for whatever, 6,000 years or something, and a recurring theme all through Chinese history is uprisings and and revolutions, civil wars. As you know, you know China has a horrifically bloody history, and so uh, all Chinese rulers live in fear that economic conditions will deteriorate to the point where they'll have a revolution and they'll wind up uh, hanging from lampposts. So the Chinese government now is facing this this situation where. The, the goods have stopped crossing borders and economic conditions are declining in, in China and, um, they've got to do something. That's, that's you know, such an important point. These Chinese rulers here are being pushed into a situation where they have to do something drastic in order to keep their population afraid of the foreign devils so that they will be kept in power. And, they are rattling their saber there in the South China Sea, um, and Washington is kind of taking the bait. And we had a few weeks ago here uh, almost a, a, a collision between a Chinese destroyer and an American destroyer. Um, and I, I think that we're moving in that direction where as the unemployment gets worse in China, the Chinese rulers have to provoke more and more dangerous incidents with the United States in order to stay in power because the population isn't going to tolerate some level of hardship. We don't know what that is anymore because China has changed so much in the last uh, 40 years that uh, we don't really know what the population will tolerate and what they won't. But... As you know, there there are rumors constantly of, of small uprisings all over China going on. Most of it is is hushed up, but things are not uh, looking well there. And I'm I'm very very concerned that uh, in fact I mean I uh, the tensions now are so great that that I've I've stepped up my recommendations for people to buy defense stocks, ones like uh, Lockheed and General Dynamics, Raytheon. Northrop Grumman, uh, Huntington Ingalls, Huntington Ingalls especially, uh, the warship maker. Um, I think there, there is a tension now locked into the China, uh, U.S. situation that's going to go on for many, many years. It's going to result in the, uh, a very uh, accelerated military buildup. It, it already is, uh, becoming that. Um, I was right about that. Uh, it would lead, lead there and it has led there. So 
So there is this military buildup on both sides going on with them rattling their sabers at each other. Um, I think, but there's a bright spot here, and that is that um, The Economist magazine, which is one of the most respected news magazines in the world uh, for their economic research, uh, has uh, pointed out that um, the the truth of Bastiat's comment about when goods do not cross borders, soldiers will. Uh, and it, over the last two or three months, the Economist did a, did research on this and, and looked at trade wars and said, you know, do they really read the, lead to shooting wars? And the Economist came up with the, the findings, which are, yep, they do. Bastiat was right. And you see, like, it was only two or three weeks after the Economist put that study out that suddenly um, the Chinese government and the U.S. government began talking about, well, maybe we ought to ease off on this trade war thing. So um, I think maybe they scared each other. Um, and um, there may be some individuals in both governments that are saying, look, you don't want to get into a war with them. Uh, the other side is too powerful, and it will be horrible. And it could be that both sides are getting rational or starting to get rational about this thing, and they're going to back off of the trade war. Now, I suggested that, uh, I think, two months ago, an early warning report, that this is a really big thing. If they back off and that trade war goes away, um, meaning if, if each of them allows the other one to, get, to declare victory uh, so that the populations think that something good has happened. <laughs> um, so if, if both of them can brag to their populations that they've won the trade war and the whole thing just quiets down, I think you will have an economic boom uh, around the world that will be amazing. And, um, you know, stock markets will go wild. Uh, who knows what else? It will be a really wonderful time for at least six months, and, and hopefully it will go a long time after that. Well, you brought up a very interesting point there, because just knowing so much about the Chinese culture and the people themselves, one of the most fundamental thing to Chinese people is saving face. So if you allow them to save face in front of their own people, it's it's going to be a very it's going to be a huge thing for them. If if you humiliate them, if you put them down and and shame them, it's not going to end well for anybody, I believe. Yep, absolutely. I I agree with that 100%. And um I think that uh I'm hopeful now, for, you know, for the first time in in 2 years probably. I'm hopeful that Trump is going to back away from this this trade war thing, uh, and we can talk about the economics to it of it if if you want to. Um, uh, the idea that that tariffs and trade wars are a good thing, I mean, this guy says he believes that, but it's insane. I mean, it's absolutely insane. It's mental. Like, like I said at the beginning, I understand the technical side. It's the it's the why that I don't understand. You know, because I keep trying to think about it, like, what is the overarching plan? Like, what is the benefit for doing this? But if you explain that really it's just these egomaniacs who are trying to stay in power and they're using this as a tool to do so, I guess that makes a lot more sense. Because when when I'm looking at country versus country, the trade war, this is really the opposite of what we want if we want a prosperous 
uh, nation. I don't. It, it's the why that I don't get. Yeah. Um, yeah. To me, it all comes down to political power. Um, let's define that real quickly. Political power is the legalized privilege of using brute force on persons who have not harmed anyone. That's the only thing that sets governments apart from all other institutions. You know, no church or charity or or business or fraternal organization, no private organization can use brute force on people who haven't harmed anyone. And we're all allowed to use brute force in in self-defense. If somebody's going to attack us with brute force, we can defend ourselves. Governments are the only institutions allowed to initiate the use of brute force. And a person who wants to be in office, who wants to be a politician, wants to be a leader of a government, is a person who wants that privilege of using brute force on people who haven't harmed anyone. So what kind of person is that? Is that a person that you want to consider to be a friend? Um, you know, you, a person who wants political power, in my opinion, must be assumed to be somewhat deranged because he wants that power. And, and that power is an evil thing. All through history, pundits have observed that political power corrupts the morals and the judgment. Even if you, you go into office with good intentions, you're using brute force on people who haven't harmed anyone. And um, it, it corrupts. That's it, you know. And it's uh, it, it violates the second law, do not encroach. Governments claim the legal right to encroach on people who haven't harmed anyone. So um, it, to me, it all comes back to that. I kind of see it as a see government as a form of mental illness. So how about some of your friends then? Because, like, I know that you were quite close to Harry Brown, and didn't he run for presidential nominee under the libertarian ticket? And then Ron Paul did as well. And when you read their work, like, they seem more like heroes to me than mentally deranged. So what is the difference? Why were those people trying to step forwards and they didn't fall into that category? Um. I, I, a friend of mine used to use the analogy of a runaway bulldozer. Um, the, the typical libertarian stands and looks at the government and he sees it as a runaway bulldozer and he says, that thing's terrible. Stay away from it. It will hurt you. Um, and, and so he backs away from it. And so almost all of us who believe in liberty and free markets, I, I, I should say the system of liberty and free markets, for it is a system. Those of us who believe in it tend to shy away from governments completely. But there are occasionally a few heroes out there who say, I'm not going to back away from the runaway bulldozer. I'm going to try to climb up into the seat and grab, grab the controls and turn the thing off. And Harry Brown was that person and Ron Paul was that person. There's been a few others. Um and, you know, I have nothing against that. If they want to be heroes and climb up in the seat and try to turn it off, that's fine with me. Um, it's just that, you know, I used to warn them, <laughs> once you're up there, you know, you, you're going to have all kinds of tempting offers about, you know, why don't you use your power for just this thing here and maybe just that thing there, and you'll find up after six months or so you're going to be corrupt. 
And, um, I, you know, neither one of them ever got any amount of power that would, uh, have challenged that. But, um, I think of that, uh, anybody, if he's put in a very high office in any government, he's going to turn into a very bad person pretty quickly. Well, all of it is a very interesting concept because you try to look at it from an outsider's perspective and try to understand what is going on. And when you don't have like the alternative media, when you don't have something in front of you, like say the revolution by Ron Paul or, or these types of literature in front of you. And what you see is this mainstream media pumped down your throat all day long and, and listening about the trade wars and all these other challenges that are happening in the world. Like it gets so confusing, you know, and and that's why I'm so excited to have people like you on and, and some of the other guests that we've mentioned from today's show. Um, and I and I highly encourage my listeners to, if you haven't heard those episodes, to please make sure you go back through our archives of, of episodes on the Expat Money Show and hear them because these are recurring themes that we're bringing up over and over again. And, and it really is important to get that alternative media side, understanding it from a different point of view. I get quite emotional. Uh, talking about these types of things. You get emotional talking about some of the past that you went through with your time in the Air Force. I get quite emotional when I think about what's happening in the world and how it's affecting people and how it's it's putting people's lives and their their liberty and their peace in jeopardy. And I'm, and I'm trying to understand it as deep as I can. <laughs> no, that's good. The audience responds to that. Sorry, Richard. I'm getting uh, fired up here, you could say. <laughs> uh -huh. Okay, so let's bring things full circle. I digress. I don't want to rant too much here, Richard. So let's talk about the economic aspects of what will happen if the trade war United States and China progresses, if it does go down this, this path. Um, you said you're hopeful for the future, but if things go the other direction, what is that going to mean for the rest of us? It's going to be really bad. Um, and I, I hearken back to the Smoot-Hawley tariffs of the 1930s. Uh, in 1929 or 28, uh, there were two politicians in America named Smoot and Hawley who decided that American manufacturers should be protected from competition abroad. And they in, enacted a huge number of tariffs, uh, not by themselves. They got Congress to go along with them and the president. I don't know if the president did or not, come to think of it, but the rest of Congress certainly did. So they levied these tariffs, and um, that greatly uh, worsened the Great Depression, which started with the stock market crash in 29. Um, countries were in trouble. Uh, already due to the monetary manipulation of the central banks. And then on top of it, Smoot and Hawley lay this, this trade war on, on them. And it just turned a serious recession into the Great Depression. And at one point in the United States, uh, unemployment hit 25%, according to the government statistics. And, uh, in Germany, um, we're told that it hit 40% because people couldn't sell the goods that they had been selling. Um, and so, you know, all kinds of people were laid off. 
so you had uh, the economic situation becoming worse and worse and worse, and um, all in many many countries, uh, people began to uh, vote for people like Adolf Hitler, and it led to World War II. And that's what a trade war can do. It can lead to a world war. We've got that that example right there, and it's been observed many times that trade wars do that. And I think that if if uh, Trump and Z do not cool this thing pretty fast, uh, it's going to happen here. Um, the uh, the worsening conditions in China will will continue to get worse, and the Chinese government will simply be pushed into having a war in order to stay in power. Um, and, it, and it will probably spread elsewhere from there, too. So how will something like that begin? Will that happen similar to what we were talking about with the Japanese? Will it be the U.S. encroaching on other people's territory, or will it be the Chinese encroaching on the U.S.'s? Or is it going to be something similar like that, where they're uh, egging each other on until someone actually fires the first shot. All right. Um, to answer that, I'll, I'll draw on my military experience. Uh, a lot of people who have never been in the military think it's something that it's not. Um, essentially, it is a whole bunch of young men, in some cases young women, but mostly young men uh, don't have very much real-life experience and who like to take risks, and who are pretty tough, and um, who like to play with uh, with weapons, and um, they tend to have a uh, an inclination to go off on their own and do what they want with all these toys they've got to play with. So whenever you have a situation like we did a few weeks ago where you've got an American destroyer and a uh, Chinese destroyer in the South China Sea um, making lunges at each other, let's say, um, you have that young male um, surge of testosterone going on throughout these forces. And very often somebody makes a mistake. Uh, somebody pulls a trigger that they weren't supposed to pull or, or does something else that they're not supposed to do. Now, it's their sergeant's job to stop that, but the sergeant's only human. He's got at least nine guys that he's got to keep an eye on. It only takes one of those guys to pull the trigger, and you've got a war. So... All military forces, when they're close up against each other, are uh, are really dangerous um, because they're never under complete control. The sergeants can only do just so much. And that's the situation that can arise. Um, an example um, uh, that most Americans are not taught is the way the uh, French and Indian War started in America, where um, there was a young officer who was given more responsibility than he was capable of handling, and he went out as an American officer. He went out with his troops into the woods, and they came across some Frenchmen, and somebody started shooting. And the, that was the beginning of the French and Indian War, because this young officer didn't have 
enough control over his troops. That young officer's name was George Washington. And um, that's where he began to get his military experience, through an accidental start of a war. It was his fault. Um, that sort of thing is very common throughout history. Um, you know, nobody knows who started any given war um, in, in many cases, not all cases, but many. So, um, as the U.S. government and the, the Chinese government square off against each other, you more and more run the chance that some 18-year-old who controls some missile someplace is going to fire the thing off. It's, it's just almost unavoidable the longer the tension lasts. Yeah. And if you'll talk to any um, experienced officer, let's say, well, who knows, captain on up, um, uh, they they will tell you that's one of their greatest fears is one of their people is just going to turn into a young male <laughs> and he's going to do something stupid. Uh, and and that's that's the thing to bet on, I think. That's the greatest likelihood. As this trade war goes on and on, and as the two sides face each other in the South China Sea or the East China Sea, some young soldier or sailor is going to do what he's not supposed to do, and we're going to have a war. Well, I remember reading about the Cuban Missile Crisis and when all of that was going on, and basically the U.S. made a bet saying that there were no nuclear warheads on Cuba. And it come out. It came out years later, and there was something like 120 nuclear missiles just off the coast of the United States. And you can figure that if one of those young soldiers had have pulled the trigger and fired at the ships in front of them, you know, we might not all be here today. That's right. Absolutely right. Uh, for some reason, Kennedy is regarded as a hero in this thing. <laughs> he nearly blew up the world. Um, and, I, and that just shows you the insanity of politics. Now, another thing that Americans are not taught, uh, I don't know about people in other countries, but um, there was a, um, China, a Russian nuclear submarine uh, that was cruising in the area of Cuba, and it was being stalked by American destroyers, and um, the destroyers were starting to drop depth charges on it, and um, the captain of the submarine was on the verge of launching a nuclear torpedo, which would have started the nuclear war, and um, the, yeah, I think it took the agreement of three officers on that sub to fire, and there was one officer that wouldn't do it. I don't remember what his name was, but he was the big hero of the Cuban Missile Crisis. It was that it came down to one man averting nuclear war. So basically. What we can see in the future is really two possibilities. So either the trade's going to stop between China and the United States and soldiers are going to follow. And most likely, if something violent does happen, it's going to happen from a stupid mistake from someone with inexperience. And maybe on the other side, if things get a lot better for us, it'll probably be because the governments de-escalate this trade war and each of the governments is really going to be able to save face in front of their own people. So do you think that's probably one of these two likely scenarios? 
Yes, uh, absolutely. Something you might listen for, you may, you won't pick up any direct, uh, explanations from the news media, but you might pick up little hints here and there. If you see military officers, high commanders on, on either side, um, beginning to try to keep their, their forces apart, to make moves to put distance, uh, you know, miles between their forces. What they're doing if they do that is they're trying to prevent an accident. Um, and they are getting very worried that, that one has become very possible. So that's a kind of an indicator to watch for. If you hear some officers making statements, you know, reassuring statements like, we have put 25 miles between our forces and theirs or something like that. Um, that, that's a very good sign that the officers are trying to get on top of this thing and keep the politicians from blowing up the world. And so what would be some key phrases that we would want to watch out for on the opposite side to, that we would be worried about or concerned about? Um, I, I know how military forces work and all of that. So I, I know what's universal around the world throughout history is that when the officers realize that they're, they're, the politicians are putting them in a situation where the shooting might start, they'll try to put distance between their forces and the other side. We kind of started off today's interview by understanding a bit more about the difference between um, encroaching and what this means uh, on other people's space and how that's leading up to what's what's happening today with the trade wars. If my listeners are like me, they want to know and understand more. They want to get educated on how things work, maybe on Austrian economics and how to see things from that 40,000 foot view of the world, what kind of recommendations would you make for someone my age? Uh, you mean what to read? What to read, how to get educated, how to look, because like I was mentioning before in the interview, you know, there's so many things out there that I can't trust, but there has to be voice of reason out there. <laughs> yeah, someplace. Um, to go to Early Warning Report on the internet, uh, you'll go to earlywarningreport.com. Um, earlywarningreport.com forward slash dash C999. Yeah, C999. Earlywarningreport.com forward slash C999. Uh, and uh, the Uncle Eric books are available there too. Also, we talk a lot about ethics here. Um, we have a company called Ethics Solutions that we founded and its purpose is to revive the original natural law system and to show people how to live it day by day and how it can make you more successful. And so I would, I would really, uh, um, encourage people to go to ethicssolutions.net. Uh, again, that's ethicssolutions.net and look into that. There's a short course, takes about three hours that teaches you a whole lot about how to use the um, the ancient system of natural law to think through daily pro problems that you might run into or that you do run into, and it will affect every part of your life. You will be amazed at how understanding that ancient system of law uh, really makes life a lot better and helps you choose the kind of people for your life that you really want to be associated with. Um, 
it's, uh, you know, we have all kinds of, of praise from employers and other people who put their, their employees through this three hour course. Uh, and it's, uh, it's very inexpensive and believe me, it's one of the best investments that you'll ever make. Well, I'm going to have to check that one out myself. As for your books, I've read a number of your Uncle Eric books, and they are just so phenomenal. I read uh, Whatever Happened to Penny Candy, and it's so amazing because, you know, I got my hand on some university textbooks for economics, um, I want to say about five or ten years ago, and I started reading through them. And it's just it's mind-boggling what a university book will teach you and then a book like yours where it really hones down on those fundamentals, those things that you need to understand and it explains them in a way that actually makes sense and is exciting to read and engaging. And when I think about the university textbooks, like I wanted to blow my brains out. They were unbelievably bad. Um, so I will definitely, sorry, I will definitely, um, encourage my listeners to get that. And I also read your five, uh, books on the, the great monetary calamity. I bought them, I think on Kindle, they were 99 cents a piece and they're like a set of five books. Um, they were wrote what about eight years ago, I want to say, were they 2010, 2012, something like that? That's probably a good guess. Yeah. Uh huh. It's amazing because reading those, they seemed as applicable today as probably the moment that they were wrote back then. And for a buck a piece, I just, I was such a fan. I, I think I read all five of them in about a week. Um, so I would encourage everyone to go and check those ones out as well. Well, thank you. Um, can I tell a quick story about a, a young woman I met who had read Whatever Happened to Penny Candy? Yes, absolutely. I'd love to hear. Yeah. Um, I was uh, giving a speech at some investment conference somewhere, and um, this young woman came up to me, uh, looked to be, I would guess, 22 or, or thereabouts, and she said uh, she just wanted to tell me how thankful she was that uh, I had written whatever happened to Penny Candy. And I said, oh, uh, you know, why, uh, why are you so enthusiastic about it? And she said um, she uh, was going through, it was one of the, the big name colleges, I don't know what it was, in the Ivy League bunch, and uh, she had uh, decided uh, to get a degree in uh, business and investment, and, sh and she could not absorb the economics. She said, I had no trouble with, with all sorts of other very uh, challenging classes like physics and chemistry and calculus and all of these. I just breezed through all of those, but I couldn't get economics. <clears throat> and she said, I, um, I was losing confidence in myself and I actually had felt that perhaps I had experienced a stroke or something and I had brain problems. And that's why I couldn't understand the economics. And I was going to start going to doctors to find out what they could do for me because the economics was just completely opaque to me. And then I picked up your little Whatever Happened to Penny Candy book that's written on the level for 13-year-olds. And she said, I understood economics. And I realized that my brain was okay. I love that story because it's so very true. Like my university economics textbook, I'm, I'm actually looking at my computer right now. It's propping up my monitor so that it's at a higher level so I don't strain my neck. And Uncle Eric books have a prized spot on my library 
you know, right dead center. And, and, and you really show that economics and finance and history and things like these, these are actually not boring subjects. These are actually really exciting subjects that when people understand it, they can really dive deep and, and, and really get so much out of it. And it affects all of us. It's almost like people, and I don't want to be conspiracy theory here, but it's almost like educate, big education or the government or whomever, they don't want you to know this stuff. So it's like they write it in a way to make it purposefully difficult so that people will just shy away from it and, and feel like they have to outsource that type of thinking to other people. <laughs> that's really true. I mean, I mean, that's, isn't that what governments have done all through history? When the biggest disaster that ever hit the world was when socialism arrived in the late 1800s and it, it swept through the intellectual communities and then it swept through the universities. And uh, by, let's say, 1930, you weren't considered a real intellectual unless you were socialist. And so they all started teaching only those facts that were supportive of socialism, and they would just forget the stuff <laughs> that was an alternative viewpoint. So by the time you get to, like, 1960, all the teachers, pretty much, um, were uh, socialists. They didn't know they were. But they were, and and they are today. Um, they don't know they are. Uh, nobody ever tells them you're only going to get you know one side of the story here when we teach you this in college. Uh, they they're not made aware of that. They're just look. They're just told this is the view of of uh, economics or law or whatever it is. Nobody is taught that there there's two kinds of law. There's natural law and made up law. It's just uh, you know, there's a, a huge part of knowledge just goes right down, right down the memory hole as soon as governments start controlling education. Well, I agree with you a hundred percent there, and I think that is a, maybe a fantastic topic um, to have you back on the show to talk about next time, because I would love to hear more about your opinions about how that works and uh, and what to watch out for. Richard, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. I know you gave the links earlier in the episode. Maybe you can give us one more time if people want to get a hold of you, if they want to learn more about what you do and want to pick up a copy of Early Warning Report and subscribe to your newsletter. Where can we send them? Okay, again, uh, earlywarningreport.com forward slash C999. And then um, also for Ethics Solutions, it's ethicssolutions.net. Um, and I, I really encourage everybody to look at Ethics Solutions because once you take that course, which only, is only going to take you three hours, you are going to be amazed at how much you're going to understand and how much better your life is going to be because you know how to think like people did in the past who understood what we call venerable law. Well, I know I'm going to be picking up a copy of that myself because, like I said, I've read your books, but I have not had a chance to take any of your courses. So that sounds very interesting for me. Richard, once again, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate your time today, and we'll talk again soon, okay? Thank you, Mikhail. I tell you, you got a great show here, and I, I again, thank you very much for having me on and, and people who are of the opinion that we need to return to liberty and free markets. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks so much.
are not facing global uncertainty alone. There is help. Arm yourself with the foresight that only Early Warning Report, EWR, can provide. Since 1991, Richard Mayberry, editor of Early Warning Report, has guided readers in simple, fast-reading, direct language toward ways to protect their wealth against political, military, and financial chaos governments are causing around the world. The performance of your investments is determined mostly by the performance of the economy, and the performance of the economy is determined by law and politics. To know how your investments will behave, you must know how governments will behave. Often citing historical parallels, Early Warning Report doesn't just explain what is happening to you. It suggests ways to protect your savings and earn profits. We challenge you to find any publication with a better track record. Between 1989 and 2007, geopolitics and the military events were dominant, offering huge profits. From 2007 to 2017, economics was the focus. Now Mr. Mayberry forecasts that geopolitics and military events have returned to center stage. These revelations and insights are available only in Early Warning Report. Take advantage of this time-limited offer. Order today. Join the exclusive group of well-informed readers who are highly skeptical of the analysis they receive from the mainstream media. Go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash EWR and claim your 40% off of the cover price of Early Warning Report. Just go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash EWR. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.